Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. Pastor, how are you tonight? Good. A little, uh, little chillier than I think you are in Florida. We're going to get down about minus 20 centigrade tonight, so like minus eight or so. Oh, boy. Fahrenheit. Yeah. Oh, but boy. That's a, little, that's a little warmer. It was cooler the night before. So <clears throat> That is terrible. Yep. Uh, people here are complaining because it's going to get near the freezing mark uh, Saturday morning. Oh, but... Life is tough. Life is tough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, tonight we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, the last few weeks we've been mostly focusing on the gospel readings for the Sundays in the Epiphany season. Um, but tonight we're actually going to be looking at a, a special feast or commemoration that the church celebrates uh, regarding the uh, conversion of St. Paul. Yeah, and it's kind of neat to have that in the midst of the Epiphany season. It's, uh, think about it, Paul does reveal the gospel, right? Right. That's his job. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. It's it's fitting that this falls during the Epiphany season. I'm not sure why this specific date was chosen. It, it's celebrated traditionally on the, the 25th of January. Um, and so it is always during Epiphany, uh, but who, who knows why it was selected, but it why. is fitting. It is, yeah, fitting. it is very appropriate, very appropriate. So we're going to look mm -hmm. at that. Good. Great. So pastor, would you mind, uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter nine, which is one of the places that this narrative is given. And yeah, it's given a couple other times. Paul recounts it, uh, when he's be before the Sanhedrin and, and then when he's before, um, King Agrippa. So, but this is the account that uh, Luke records for us in Acts chapter 9. Great. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
or I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Excellent. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. So um, an amazing story. Uh, so amazing, in fact. It's it's pretty unusual that during the church year, we observe an event that happens in the specific life of one of the apostles. So if you look at the church year, um, most of the major feasts are based around some event during the life of Christ. You think of Christmas, Easter, Epiphany, Transfiguration, all these things. But we have a couple instances, this one included, where we commemorate and celebrate a specific event in the life of one of the apostles. And um, obviously this was a huge event uh, in the history of Christianity. Like the ripple effects from the singular event, um, obviously we're still feeling to this day. And so maybe you can talk about some of the significance of uh, this specific commemoration. There's a lot. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. So first off, I have to say that it was probably a significant event in Paul's life as well. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Game changer for him. Here he is attacking these Christian people, those of the way, and now he's one of them. Right. And that, of course, is huge. He's He's changing sides, as it were. But what Paul managed to do was reach out to so many people over so many years and tell and explain to them, even starting in, in Damascus, one of the, if not the oldest, one of the oldest cities in the world, uh, that he, he, he proved to them that Jesus is the Christ. Right. And he was perhaps in a better position than anyone else to do this. You know, when, when you look at the conversion story, um, our initial thought might be Paul is a really unlikely guy for God to choose to be this apostle and to spread the news of the gospel to the Gentiles because he's a persecutor, right? He's going around, uh, you know, killing and persecuting the, the current church. And so we read that and we're like, why on earth would God choose this person to be a missionary to, to all these people? And, um, but he does have a specific background and education that I think suits him to doing the line of work that he was called to do. He, he does. He, you know, he was a student of Gamaliel, who was a, a well-known teacher in, in Judaism. Paul was a Pharisee, so he was a religious leader. He would have been well-educated. He was well-educated. And he, so here's the, the, what I think is always the really cool thing about the conversion account is that Paul knows the Old Testament knows the prophecies about the Messiah, knows the history of, of his people. and But he has it wrong. Mm -hmm. he, he has it so wrong that he doesn't understand that Jesus is the promised one. Right. And then when his conversion happens, it must have been like a bunch of dominoes being knocked over 
that all of a sudden all these pieces start to fit into place, whether it's the Isaiah passages or the promise made to Adam and Eve or Psalm 22 or whatever prophecy you want to think about from the Old Testament in respect to Jesus, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I, I had it all wrong. Right. But he knew it. Yeah. And in fact, you know, having been wrong about all these things might have been one of the things that made him so effective, right? Because he would have been able to see where the other Pharisees are going wrong and in interpreting these different prophecies. So having like been in the shoes of being an heir and not recognizing the Christ when he came, perhaps that made him more effective in his ministry. He knew the 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 fault in the logic. Right. Or, and we see this even in our day, right? Like um, there are a couple of very prominent Muslim apologists who are very effective at preaching the gospel to other Muslims because they've been in their shoes and they know the errors and the pitfalls that are common um, for, you know, common misunderstandings for Muslims when they approach scripture, that sort of thing. So having been in their shoes can kind of sympathize and knows the best way to direct them, so to speak. Yeah, which which word of God is going to work on their hearts, knowing which word of God worked on his own heart, right? Right. So right. Paul's going to understand how they're looking at certain verses in a wrong way. Right, exactly. Right? And which ones they need to pay attention to. Precisely. Yeah. And so um, as we're speaking about Paul's conversion, you brought up a good point as we were preparing for this. Um, it might be good to talk about conversion in general and kind of what that entails and maybe some of the perceived differences and similarities between Paul's conversion and perhaps our own conversions. Right. So like every conversion, there's really two parts to it, contrition and faith. So that's really what conversion boils down to, right? Yeah. That's what conversion is. That's what conversion is. You're, you're turned, you're turned away from your sinful ways, contrition, you're turned. I mean, because you can repent of something Mm -hmm. like in the sense of feeling sorry afterwards. Right. But then you're just sad and sorry and nothing changes. Right. Right. Now you just have guilt. Mm -hmm. But when you have contrition and then faith, when you turn to God, then you have that that wonderful, sweet, sweet gospel that washes away your sins. Right. So in, in that respect, Paul's conversion is just like our conversion, just like mm-hmm. everyone else's. The the unique factors of Paul's, though, is that you know, we talk so much about that Damascus Road experience. We talk about the bright light, we talk about Jesus appearing to him, all that. That that hasn't happened to me. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Set the record straight. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, but, but we're all, this is the one of the, God is so gracious that he deals with us individually and personally. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean individualistically or personal in such a way as that, well, you know, this is my, my religion and I, I keep it or something. No. But he deals with this as the individuals we are. Right. So we can say it's a, it's a personal thing, but it, it, it isn't private. And it and it's shared, right? But for so many of us, our conversion um, would have taken place when we were baptized. Mm-hmm. Some of us when we were older. But but you know, God meets us where we are. He's He's the Hound of Heaven who comes and finds us, and then works on us where we are in a way that is gentle, 
Although I, the Damascus Road experience doesn't really seem that gentle when I think about it. Right. <laughs> uh, but for most of us, it's a gentle um, drawing to God that, that he does by the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's talk about that point a bit, because I think that is probably the biggest perceived difference between Paul's conversion and probably most of our conversions, is that it seems like uh, in some ways, you know, Paul really didn't have much of a choice, right? Um, he had this very uh vivid experience and you know he went blind for a time and uh it, it caused even some of the early church commentators who are reading this narrative uh to point out that even paul's conversion wasn't um coerced so to speak and so if you don't mind i have a little section from john chrysostom who we've mentioned sure. here before uh on this uh so commentating on this section he says if anyone should call this effect of compulsion, let him note that the same thing happened to Elemus. How is it then that he was not changed? What could be more compelling than the earthquake at the resurrection, the report of the soldiers, the other miracles, and the sight of him risen? These things, however, do not compel belief, but are apt to teach it. So here, Chrysostom seems to be reacting against people who want to say that somehow Paul was coerced into faith in a way that perhaps the rest of us weren't. Right. And I'm going to make this next statement with a little bit of caution. Okay. Almost saying he had no choice. Yes. Now, choice is a word we Lutherans don't like to use very much at all, especially if we're talking about conversion whatsoever. Right. But we like to say things like um, God makes unwilling people willing, things like that. And, but to talk about it being coerced or done under compulsion. No, that's, that's just wrong. Right. And Chrysostom mentioned a, a magician who had been also been struck blind, but we don't hear about his being converted. Yeah, that's right. Right. See, right. Alimus um, was this uh, sorcerer who uh, lost his sight um, kind of in a similar event uh, recorded in the Acts, um, but it caused someone else to convert, but it didn't cause the sorcerer himself to, to convert. Right. One of and the so, witnesses, the proconsul was converted seeing all this happening. Right. But, yeah. But he didn't, that we know of. Right. And so here, John Chrysostom is just saying, look, other people have been struck blind in miraculous circumstances and they didn't convert. And no, so right. there's still an element of um, a, an act of the will, so to speak. Like, of course, faith is a gift given to us by God and we can't detract from that. But at the same time, we're also, when we receive the gift of faith, it's not like um, God is like puppeting us to do this. There's still an act of the will going on. And that's why I like how you phrased it. God enables our will to um, to do these things. Yeah. And we have to bear in mind that God never wanted puppets. Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve had free will. Right. And, and look what happened. Right. It didn't go well. So we, uh, born in their image and likeness, our, our wills are sick, blind, dead spiritually, and and God gives our, our wills and our spirits life. Right. And so it's not a compulsion. It's not force. It's not done as the puppet master, you know, moving the puppets. It's, I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's like, you know, um, a hunger man standing before a banquet table and someone says, eat. Right. You know, it's a gracious invitation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm gracious. 
So Paul wasn't coerced, but uh, there was a pretty compelling ar argument there. On the yeah, we could say he was strongly, strongly convinced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. right. Okay, excellent. Um, let's look at some of the verses here that are kind of interesting. Uh, let's start with verse 5. Um, so when Paul has this experience, his response is, Who are you, Lord? And then he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, a couple of interesting things here. First of all, uh, Paul doesn't know right away who's speaking to him, but he still uses this title Lord, even in asking who it is that's, uh, you know, uh, speaking. So um, perhaps we can talk about that a bit. I find that a bit interesting. It is interesting, but but the, the text says that this light came from heaven mm -hmm. and this was, you know, like brighter than the sun. So he's he's sort of using the term Lord, uh, most of us know the Kyrie eleison, which means Lord have mercy. He's using that Kyrie word, Kyrios, because he's seeing this light come from heaven. It's, it, it's, he's sort of using it generically in respect to God. Mm. Could be a, a way of looking at it. But he, So right he away, he, yeah. he probably would have recognized something divine was happening. Yeah. The, the divine source right away. The bright shining light coming out of the sky. Yeah. Right. And in some sense, right, he he was um, right. He was a Pharisee, so in some sense, perhaps a, a pious man, even, um, or he was at least aware of um, you know spiritual things. Right, um, and, and and keep that in mind. The Pharisees were spiritually oriented. Right. The Sadducees did not believe in spirit things. Did not believe in the afterlife. Did not really then believe in a spiritual God. Right. Which is which is bizarre. You're a religious leader, but you you have no spiritual component to your religion. The Pharisees did have a spiritual component to their religion. Right. Okay. Right. Okay, good. I think that makes a lot of sense there. Um, let's now perhaps look at uh, verse 13. Um, so Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Now, the one thing I wanted to point out here, um, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the earliest uses of the word saints to apply to living, believing Christians. Yeah, so let's look at Paul's conversion probably around AD 35. Mm -hmm. So it's before things were being written. It's, yeah, it's, it's very early, very early. And again, um, we... The whole notion of what is a saint, someone who who believes in God, mm -hmm. just the mm -hmm. idea that the word saint coming from the Latin word santos, right, and it means holy, holy, right, like holy ones, right? Yeah, holy ones. Mm -hmm. And we did we did um, discuss this quite a bit in, in episode number two. That's right, that's right. Our All Saints Day episode. Um, yeah, we talked we talk about some of the uses of the word saint. Yeah, and how sometimes it's used as a title and sometimes it's not, but it can be used in respect to any believer. Right, right. So. And that seems to be how it's being used here. Yeah, as a group. Right, right. Very good. Um, I also wanted to look at verse 16, so just a few verses down. Um, when Ananias is, is questioning or, um, you know, kind of casting doubt on the idea that Paul is now going to be an instrument of uh, God's grace here. Um, 
God responds by saying, for I will show him, meaning Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, this is kind of a puzzling phrase. Uh, what do you think is meant here? Well, it's a weird response to Ananias' concerns, right? It is. It's it's almost like, oh, okay, you mean now he's done that and, and killed some of our brothers and sisters and arrested them and and voted yes and amen when they were sentenced to death, and, and now he's going to be one of us? Right. Like, I almost take it as uh, God saying, you know, don't worry, he's not going to get off easy for that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, goes against the whole notion of forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. We all get, we all have, we're all let off the hook as it were. But I think this is more to convince Ananias that no, he's really one of you now. Mm. That's the way I look at it. Mm. He's now on your team. He's going to suffer with his brothers and sisters. It's, it's okay. Don't worry. It's okay. So kind of saying to the effect, something like, um, you know, he used to be the persecutor but now he's going to be persecuted among the other Christian brethren, that sort of thing. I think so. I, I like to look at it that way that, that he's trying to convince Ananias that it's okay. He's truly on your side. He, he was against you, but now he's not. And, and, and he and you are going to see how much he suffers. Right. Not as punishment, but just part of being, you know, Christian people, especially in North America, forget this, but we're called to suffer. Mm-hmm. And God's timing and his sequence is always suffering and glory. Right. And so Paul's going to suffer. Right. And so, right, he won't be exempt from that suffering. It's just no. part of the, the Christian life that he's now called to. Yeah. Right. Okay, excellent. So um, perhaps we can talk a bit about uh, Paul's uh, condition, his blindness uh, in this instance. So after he's healed, um, he has these scales falling from his eyes. And uh, this is kind of curious. Um, in fact, a lot of the miracles that are associated with blindness um, kind of have these strange accounts, like when, when Jesus like rubs mud uh, in the person's eyes, that sort of thing. Um, but here we have uh, these scales falling from uh, Paul's eyes after he, he regains his sight. Um, any significance to that? Is this a, a, a like a known medical condition that we can point to? Is this something uh, perhaps symbolic? What's your take on this? That when he was healed of this, it, it, there must have appeared, I'm, I'm thinking of blinders around a horse, right? Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he had shutters on his eyes or something because the, yeah. the idea of a scale is that it's layered, right? Right. A scale overlaps like shingles do on a roof. Right. So it's almost like he had some covering or something over his eyes. and uh, But beyond that, nobody really totally understands what was going on. Right. So it's, it's almost certainly a, a, some supernatural thing. And there's probably not like a specific, you know, medical condition we can point to or something like that where something similar happens, uh, you know, in our, in our modern day. But it, it's interesting that... Um, of course, uh, as some of the early Christians are commentating on this passage, we've talked in the past how there's this attempt to find meaning in some of these things that appear puzzling. And so uh, uh, Bede, who is another uh, church father that we've mentioned, um, it's interesting. He makes this analogy of uh, like dragon scales or like uh, a snake, right? And saying that uh, he was once blinded by... Um, 
you know, this kind of deceptive uh, veneer. And now that has fallen off. And that is reminiscent of these, like these dragon or snake scales. And then to carry this, this allegory or spiritualizing of it, you have to think of the serpent in the garden, right? Right. Right. That's true. Who blinded, you know, helped to blind Adam and Eve spiritually with, with his lies. Right. So it's, it's kind of neat to put some of those pieces together in a way. And, and yeah, we don't know exactly what the deeper meaning is, if there is a deeper meaning. Right. 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 There simply may not be a deeper meaning other than the fact that he was physically blind with a, with a, um, some material on his eyes that looked like it was sort of layered over his eyes. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of neat to think about, well, yeah, the scales and, and, and that, that serpent, the liar, right? Or a dragon whom we often equate with. Well, I guess we kind of vacillate on dragons. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not so good. I, I'm not totally up on my dragon lore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Same here. Right. Yeah. And it also calls to mind um, at one point when the Jews were called the brood of vipers. Right. And so Paul is kind of being taken out of that situation uh, during his conversion experience. And so perhaps it's symbolic of that. But again, um, you know, we can't be entirely sure. No, it's it's interesting speculation, and it it doesn't hurt to let our minds wander a bit and think: Is there some significance? And and sometimes the beauty of these finding these allegorical links enables us to remember these stories more richly later on. It's true, right? Yeah, that's a memory good point. aid. Indeed. Okay, great. Um, well, we had one other reading we wanted to do tonight. Uh, one other scripture reading. Uh, Matthew 19 verses 27 through 30 are, is the gospel reading uh, prescribed for today. And um, later on, we'll read a section from Luther and he's actually pulling from this uh, Matthew 19 verse. And so yeah. pastor, if you don't mind, uh, go ahead. I'll read that. Read yeah. That. Yeah. Luther uses this, this upcoming text as a basis for a sermon from which uh, Will's going to read in a moment. Mm-hmm. Matthew 19, 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Excellent. Thank you. Interesting reading choice, huh? It is. Yeah. And throughout our devotions, basically since we started, sometimes we ask the question, why was this reading selected for this specific day? I think that's a particularly good question to ask uh, in this case. Um, perhaps, um, you know, they were just trying to associate this notion of sacrifice because obviously Paul had to leave his entire life behind when he, he converted, right? Everything he knew. Uh, being a Pharisee, uh, certainly he probably considered a huge part of his identity and all the things that come along with it. And so leaving that past life behind, um, you know, it's kind of what this passage is getting at. The Pharisees were held in very high regard by the people. Not necessarily always liked by all the people all the time. That's not, that's not the point. But they were the upper crust. They were educated. They had income. They had status. Uh, they, they would have had nice homes. All these things. And see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? I think the reason that this is applied to 
the conversion of St. Paul is that he left his status, he left his income, he left his friends. Right. Okay. Right. Because they're no longer going to like him. They're not going to invite him down to the pub for beers on a Friday night anymore. Right. They're going to bring him in front of their, in front of their court and, and have him arrested and things like that. He left a lot. And Peter's response here, we've left everything. Yeah. Paul's going to leave everything too. He's going to suffer like the Lord promised to Ananias. Right. He's going to suffer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, perhaps Luther can give us some more insight into how these two passages are linked. Uh, I'll go ahead and read uh, the Luther homily uh, for today. This is from Aramus uh, for the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. Luther says, This is a doctrine different from all others. Moses does not reveal the Son of God. He discloses the law, sin, the conscience, death, the wrath and judgment of God, and hell. These things are not the Son of God. Therefore, only the gospel reveals the Son of God. Oh, if only one could distinguish carefully here and not look for the law in the gospel, but keep it as separate from the law as heaven is distant from the earth. In itself, the difference is easy and clear, but to us it is difficult and well-nigh incomprehensible. For it is easy to say that the gospel is nothing but the revelation of the Son of God or the knowledge of Jesus Christ and not the revelation or knowledge of the law. But in the conflict of conscience and in practice, it is difficult even for those who have had a lot of experience to hold to this for certain. Now, if the gospel is the revelation of the Son of God, as it really is, then it certainly does not demand works, threaten death, or terrify the conscience. But it shows the Son of God, who is neither the law nor a work. But this simply cannot persuade the papists. Therefore, they make a, quote, law of charity of the gospel. But Christ is the subject of the gospel. What the gospel teaches and shows me is a divine work given to me by sheer grace. Neither human reason nor wisdom nor even the law of God teaches this, and I accept this gift by faith alone. This sort of doctrine, which reveals the Son of God, is not taught, learned, or judged by any human wisdom or by the law itself. It is revealed by God, first by the external word, and then inwardly through the Spirit. Therefore, the gospel is a divine word that came down from heaven and is revealed by the Holy Spirit, who was sent for this very purpose. Yet this happens in such a way that the external word must come first. For Paul himself did not have an inward revelation until he had heard the outward word from heaven, namely, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Thus he heard the outward word first. Only then did there follow revelations, the knowledge of the word, faith, and the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, Luther was very precise on the idea of the means of grace. Mm-hmm. And that God's Spirit accompanies his word. God's word is what creates faith in our sinful, stubborn hearts. Right whether words alone or with water and baptism or combined with bread and wine, the Lord's Supper, it's the word that works faith. So Jesus speaks and then Ananias speaks to him as well. Right. And we talk about the conversion on the road to Damascus, but maybe, and we don't know, but at what point did Paul actually come to faith and believe? Right. That's a good point. 
when Ananias spoke to him, when he was baptized, and, and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We don't know, but it was through the Word. Now, after we have that Word and have God's Spirit, then yes, God's Spirit you know, lives in us, and, and that's all good. But it's this external Word that comes to us from other people. And here, God used Ananias. Right. And then we look at Paul's whole life where God used him. God could right. have just spoken to people or just zapped them with his spirit or however you want to phrase it in some weird way, but God doesn't do that. And and that, again, is part of God respecting us and not coercing or forcing us to be his children. Exactly. Right. So Luther's main point here, Paul didn't just wake up one morning with some private revelation of what he ought to do. There was an audible voice that spoke to him, this external word, so to speak. And through those means, um, he was given the gift of faith. And so that's why we commonly say, right, faith comes by hearing. And that's that's a verse I, I know we quote a lot in our well, yeah, Romans, circles. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to come directly from God. It can come through people. Right. But But bear in mind, when God operates through means, he can be refused. Mm-hmm. And that's different than the idea of coercion or some spiritual hijacking or kidnapping. Exactly. And, and that's that's a really important point because um, there are some Christian denominations that believe that he actually can't be refused, right? That there's this idea of irresistible grace that yeah. uh, once God uh, gives you this gift or calls you, you, you can't refuse it no matter what, right? Yeah, and that... That just, that's not the way God has ever operated. Mm-hmm. He doesn't coerce or force or anything. He's gentle, he's He's loving, he's kind, and he's not forcing us to do something we don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And and some people regard this as the, the great last respectful act that God gives to people mm-hmm. is to allow them to, to reject him. Mm-hmm. Because, see, when people reject God and God says, okay, God's respecting them. Right. Which is weird. <laughs> yeah. To think about that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. And, and true, like in, in philosophy, when we talk about the problem of evil, especially in a Christian context, we always say that God must place a high premium on our free will because look at all the things he allows to happen uh, as a result of human free action. Right? Our free actions. Yeah. We, you know, people talk about, oh, I have free will. And yeah, you do in so many ways and and look where it's gotten you. <laughs> right. And spiritually, uh, yeah, you have free will and it's dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God yep. gives us life, spiritual life. It, exactly. Okay. Excellent. Well, oh, uh, yeah, as... just, just one little thought that was there. Sure. Uh, do you want to interrupt you? For a change, I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, the law tells us what we are to do and what not to do. Mm-hmm. The gospel tells us what Christ has done. Mm. And that's what Luther was alluding to, um, talking about the law knows nothing of, of the revealed Christ and all of that. that. Yeah, the law is God's direction for us. Do this, don't do that. The gospel is... Christ revealed right and and what Christ has done so they're they're different as night and day right and you can right. read all sorts of 
symbolism into that phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Darkness and light and all that stuff. So, And that's why this distinction is so important, especially for Luther, because a, a lot of the errors of the day he was addressing uh, mixed up this law gospel distinction or tried to blend the two in a way that produced error. Well, he talked and about so, yeah, making charity a law of the gospel or something as if when yeah, you're nude, then you have to do that. Don't confuse these things. Right. That's right. what Luther was crying about. Basically, let's get it straight. And and the question boils down to, are we saved by what we do or by what God helps us to do? Or are we saved by Christ? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's it. Okay. Indeed. Uh, do we have time to look at a psalm before your collect? Sure, we can do that. Okay, let's uh, look at Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Excellent. Okay. And you have a collect for us this evening, Will? I do. I'll close us with a, a collect. Okay. O God, who through the preaching of your blessed apostle, St. Paul, has caused the light of your gospel to shine to the Gentile world, give us grace to always rejoice in the saving light of your gospel and spread it to the uttermost parts of the earth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.